Welcome to Reflection as a Service. I'm Paul Merrill. I'm here with my co-host, James Jeffers. That's me. And we're here to talk about software development and entrepreneurship and a little bit of test automation every once in a while as well. Yeah. So we're in episode 13, I believe, James? Uh, 14. We're in 14. Right. And actually, so when you're listening to this, you just did Tisco and I just did Elixir Days. So how was Tisco? It was awesome. Yeah. How was Elixir Days? Oh, it was fabulous. I bet it was. <laughs> Yeah, was the drive down there nice? I flew. You flew? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. No problems with the airline? Smooth flight. I... <laughs> they bumped me up to first class. Oh, that's nice when they do that. So <laughs> so tonight we're going to talk about what? You have a couple ideas. Sometimes we have a guest. Tonight we're not going to have a guest. We had Josh Anderson on last. Yep. And by the way, you did a terrific job with that episode, even though I was out of town. Well, I, it was a little scary because I, I was like, can I do this solo? Am I going to ask the right questions? But Doss is a great guy to have a talk with. So. I thought it was terrific. I thought it was really great. And uh, even the, the part where he got a little personal and talking about his concussions and seeing three balls coming down at the same time uh, to catch in the end zone as a tight end at Cincinnati yeah. um, and how he was concerned about concussions for himself and his kids. Even though that wasn't technical, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, uh, it was surprising. I kind of appreciated his, his uh, willingness to open up about that. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's why people like working with him. Maybe so. Maybe so. But I thought that was really cool, and you did a terrific job. And um, I'm just surprised I still have a job here. That you <laughs> that you still have a job here? Yeah, a job here at Reflection as a Service. Oh, oh right, right. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, Paul. We've been... The Bobs have some questions for you. We have some changes we're making. We need you to file into room number two. <laughs> you're in the other room. The all, you're oh, in the no, the wrong room again. Oh, uh, that so, was so that was a reference back to the Microsoft days. Let's just pretend like they all listen to every episode. <laughs> all of our reflections. You might recall service. from episode three. <laughs> so we're up here in Raleigh. We're at James's house tonight, and I. I I'm enjoying it. This is a nice house. We've each got uh, a glass of uh, an adult beverage here, yep. and we're ready to move on. So we've got a couple things to talk about tonight. What are we going to do? Well, there's there's a couple things, but the first one is something we were talking about earlier today, um, getting ready for tonight, and we had brought up codes of conduct, especially codes of conduct in open source uh, projects. Right. So... Um, and what was the other thing that we're going to talk about, just so our listeners have a heads up? How much is a bug worth? I like that. Yeah. How much is a bug worth and codes of conduct? Yeah. So skip to the end if you want to hear about bugs. <laughs> <laughs> the last half will be about yeah. bugs. Uh, so yeah, code of conducts. I guess um, at least what you know what I've been looking at is a lot of uh, open source projects like Ruby, PHP, Rails. Um, people would uh, submit proposals that the project would adopt a code of conduct. Uh, for the maintainers and for people contributing. And on the surface, it sounds pretty, uh, like a good thing, right? Pretty innocent thing to ask for. Um, but it seemed like it had stirred up quite a bit of dust, right? Because people were pointing out that the troublesome aspects of the Code of Conduct was that there was not just a section on appropriate behavior, but also a great deal of information about how to punish transgressors. And essentially, I guess... What I got out of it was it seemed like this was a way for people to punish bad thought or bad speech. So if you uh, didn't like what somebody was saying, you could use that as a way to sort of deplatform them from the project. And for some people, okay, this is this is why this is important because a lot of people use open source projects as a means of demonstrating employability, 
Well, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So if you <laughs> are kicked out of an open source project uh, and you're no longer able to contribute to it, and that's been your way of getting gigs or demonstrating to your employer that uh, you know you're you're worth the salt that you've been paid, that can be an issue. So that that to me purely by politics. Right. Is that what you're saying? That yeah. Politics yeah. could func- could could function as a mechanism to derail your career or your employability. Yeah, and I think I mean that it has happened to a couple of people um, in the past uh, where yeah, I mean, politics did mean that was going to be the end of their job. I don't know if it meant the end of their career, but you know if you're if you get removed from a job, um, it can be pretty detrimental because. Someone's sure. going to look at your record and say, oh, were you ever fired? And then you have to explain that away. Absolutely. So, yeah, I can see how that might, that might be an issue. And I noted that um, it did seem like some of the battle lines about adopting the code of conduct and rejecting it was kind of also following along lines of uh, left-right politics. So on one side, you had people that were um, making the claim that the folks introducing the code of conducts were uh, the, um, the folks known as social justice warriors. Um, which um, I don't necessarily want to get into a break, a big breakdown as to what that might mean, but um, I think on the people that w- that were kind of pointing this out and then sort of rejecting the calls for a code of conduct were people that were I don't know what's the right way to say this anti-social justice warrior. I don't know, but that's probably not the right way to say it. But they they were more um, more part of the uh, um, freedom club. In other words, your your means of expressing yourself was more important than not offending somebody's um, uh, emotions, or uh, you know, like if you are if you're made to feel not welcome, like that's going to hurt you emotionally. Like social ostracism is an effective tool for altering people's behavior. So if you feel like people don't like you and they're going to use a harsh language to denigrate you or uh, you know, make fun of you or, you know, uh, put down your contributions. Uh, I, I could see how, you know, that's going to be a frightening prospect. But at the same time, you know, if you're going to introduce a code of conduct, which has language about reprimanding people, I can also see how that's, that can be pretty scary, right? Coming sure. into a project. That is so interesting. The way that you approach talking about this when you brought up the idea of talking about codes of conduct my initial reaction was visceral it was absolutely my blood started to boil really yeah okay i think the reason that that happened is because number one i think we've i think a lot of people have just gotten rid of the whole book of manners Right. So I'll break the, sorry, I'm not, maybe I'm not quite as academic as you about this, nope. but it seems to me no, that we had these things called manners and we used to have this thing called professionalism. Yes. And if you acted amongst those things, if you use those things as your backing and those things as your tools for interacting with others, you could do pretty well in the world. Right. Yep. We all had kind of a well understood way of working together. Um, and then I started seeing all these conversations about codes of conduct and it seems to have been really, really popular lately. Um, in the last maybe year or two that to have a code of conduct for your open source project, to have a code of conduct for your conference or whatever. Um, I was never really one for loving the fact that HR had to be in every organization, right? I feel like we're all grown adults. We know how to interact with each other. Let's just be respectful and, and do the right thing. 
However, there are two sides to this, right? So there's the side that I feel like has a certain group of people that they're working with and has to ensure that there is some way of dealing with those people if things go badly. Yep. And then there are people who things go badly for. Um, and th those are kind of the two groups and they have to find a way to work together, right? Um, now, I've been in the situation where I needed to use HR in order to deal with something and a code of conduct could function in the same way provided you didn't have HR there, right? Yeah. But I guess, I guess to me, you know, the more I read through it and you showed the Ruby on Rails code of conduct and I don't know if you have it open if we can read through one of those, but the Ruby on Rails one I thought was really, really good. The Ruby one was okay. But what I saw in those was that it was really just a mechanism to ensure that we have a way to deal with people who are problematic or people who have done things that are problematic within a given group. Is the value though, uh, like having the code of conduct in place or is the value just knowing that somebody in charge is going to pay attention to the issue and then act on it? Because it seems like I, I have a hard time believing that if you have a project like the Rails project and if someone is being a complete uh, troll, if they are doxing somebody, if they are just not contributing in any meaningful way to the project. They're not driving anything technical. They're just picking on somebody and just, just being a jackass about it. That one of the project maintainers is just going to say, look, either you contribute in a professional manner or we're just not going to. But why, but why doesn't that happen already? Why can't we just say you're out of the project because well, that's you're a jerk? Like yeah. we don't want to deal with you anymore. Just kick them out of the project and move on. So what, we have to write a rule so that someone has a justification for why they kicked somebody out of an open source project that they control anyway. Right. Like why, that's what I don't get. Like it's your project. If someone's not working with it, if they don't agree with what you say, kick them out. Or don't accept like, their, their pull if request. They, if they don't like it and they feel like they were justified, then they can fork it and go do their own thing. Right. Fork you, go, man. <laughs> go do your own thing. Like who yeah. cares? I, I just, I, that's the part for me that I don't understand. Now I, I do understand where there are people who uh, are completely out of line and there has to be some type of mechanism to, I keep saying mechanism, but some kind of system or something procedural to deal with them because maybe you have certain interest in that particular project or that conference, right? Yeah. You don't want your own brand to be tarnished by those things. I, I can understand that. You need some way to distance yourself from those people. But some of these things, like if you're picking on somebody because they're of a different ethnicity, like wh why do we have to write a rule for that? Like what, what is the, I, I don't, I don't, I just don't get it. I don't get that. I, th I think it, I think it does come down to someone being able to say so-and-so like making the case, so-and-so violated the code of conduct. Someone needs to act. And I think, I think that by having the code of conduct, it makes some people feel better about the organization. Now I, I'm not sure, like, like, I think I agree with you that like, why do you need that? If it's if it's project that's under the control of X Y Z, X Y Z can just say, you know what, these people are are not contributing. We just don't have to accept anything they say, and then away they go. Um, I I don't know. Like I, I guess other people were like, well, unless the organization publicly rebukes bad conduct in the form of a code of conduct. They're evil people. My, my hands are in the air right now. You see, my hands are in the air. My hands I'm are in the air too. My hands in the air because what? Like, why do we have to do this constantly? We const like we constantly have to say. That's why we can't have nice things. <laughs> we constantly have to say yes. That was a terrible thing that that person said. I rebuke it. Like any normal person is going to say that. This is like, an a, this is like an a prior 
uh, censorship, right? Because if you if you impose like there will be punishment if you speak out of line, that is a chilling factor in people's expression. Like if you tell someone there will be a hundred thousand dollar fine if I determined that the newspaper printed something that I consider to be libelous, right? And I had the ability to enforce that, right? And I could point to a body of law and I have an agency that could collect that money. Do you, do you think maybe that would have a chilling effect on a, on a newspaper's willingness to print any story? Yeah. And okay. So I, and understand, like I've said several times already, I, I think is that I understand that there needs to be something in place in order to, to deal with these things in some situations. Yeah. I don't think that an open source project of three people needs a code of conduct. And I don't think that you're, you, you know what I mean? Like we don't yeah. need to deal with every single social issue and every single code of conduct and whatever, like just because it's a problem in a conference that has 20,000 people that come to it. There might be people who have certain. Is, do you, do you think, well, all right. Well, for a project that's not three people, like one that's got thousands of people, does the number of people make a difference? Well, now, now we really start playing politics, right? I mean, so of course, if you happen to be that one person out of three that has something that is sensitive, I don't even know how to approach this subject without failing completely on political correctness. Because what am I even able yeah, to say? Paul, like, you're you're in a safe space now. You no, I'm not. I'm recorded. I'm recorded. Like, what, and and there's nothing wrong. And, and I don't have anything to hide. I'm just trying to say this in such a way that. I, I don't have a million people barking down my throat. Like if, if you yeah. have something that's a sensitivity about you, okay, yeah, that's just, that's the best that I know how to say it in my limited experience and limited know-how. If you have something that's sensitive about you or that someone else has pointed out that becomes a sensitivity because they pointed it out and you're the one in three, then I guess there should have been a code of conduct. But between those three people, are you telling me there wasn't enough open communication to already have that discussion? Instead of having a code of conduct, and what does the code of conduct add to those three people? So that the other two can say, yeah, dude, you were really rude to person A because you know that they're sensitive about what, and that's the wrong word. I know sensitivity is probably even the wrong word, but I, I'm, I'm limited in my vocabulary here. And what I'm, what I, what I, yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying? I, like what? I do. three people. Like, can we not just talk? <laughs> I think, I think it comes down to, to a matter of social trust. Uh, because if you know, I'm looking at I'm looking at the code of conduct, say for the Rails organization, and there's, there's a line in here that says, um, "I think you should read." That was a really good one. Would you mind reading it? Which one? The, the whole thing. Ruby on Rails one. Yeah. Is it too long or? Well, it's how big a couple, is it? Couple paragraphs. It's right? it's not bad, um, but I think people would fall asleep if I just read the entire thing. Okay. But I'll, I'll read okay. I'll read the the part that I thought was kind of interesting. So okay, um, this is this is from the RubyOnRails.org conduct, and we'll put we'll put the links in the notes so that you can yeah. you can read them. We commit to fairly and consistently applying these principles, which they've listed above, to every aspect of managing the project. Project maintainers who do not follow or enforce the code of conduct may be permanently removed from the project team. So what there is a, basically a public declaration is that we we hold these values to be uh, valuable, and that if we find People are not uh, obeying them and not enforcing them on other people. We reserve the right to kick them out. So, like you said, like can we not just talk? Well, I think the reason people want to see this written down and publicly displayed is that the, the amount of social trust that is in the organization for that person is very, very low. Because if you have to have a law that, that codifies behavior and punishment, 
what I think that says is that you have very little trust that um, your grievances will be redressed without that being in place. And so if you've got three people in a project and they all kind of know each other, do you need a code of conduct? Probably not because there's just three of you. So the odds that you'll have a high social trust among those people is probably pretty good. That's my guess. Um, now, this, this is not to say that uh, the people that have low social trust in other people, that that's right or wrong. But I think that's why they feel like they need it, right? Um, me, like if I go to a project and people are just a bunch of jerks and they personally offensive to work with, hey, dude, I'll just fork your code and I'll make my own community. Right. You know, you could make, I don't know, uh, you know, you could you could build your own project. I mean, what can they do to stop you? Nothing really. I, I guess I guess to me, I don't understand how we got to this point. Like, how did we get to this point that we, where, I, I mean, I, I feel like there were a small set of rules to any given group for a very long period of time. Don't kill anybody. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. We can, we can get into a debate about where those rules came from or whatever you want at some point in the future. But it seemed like there were, there were a small set of rules that we could abide by that kind of kept everybody together. Yeah. When did we get to the point that all of those rules are not enough? And instead, for each and every project, we have to have a code and co code of conduct. And for each and every conference, we have to have a code of conduct. I mean, I, I just don't get that. I just don't understand how it broke down so much. And I feel like one of the things that's happened is probably, in my mind, one of the things that's happened must be the anonymity of the Internet. That if you can get onto one of these projects as an anonymous contributor... And any time, frankly, any time I, I feel like any time I'm on the computer talking to somebody rather than face to face or even on the phone, there's a certain level of who cares to it, right? That that I can say whatever I want to you because I'm never going to meet you again. I've never met you in person. I don't even, you know, your your avatar may not even be your face. It may just be the logo of your company or whatever, like mine is on Skype, right? You you know what I'm saying? Like then then you can say whatever you want, and because of that an anonymity, people troll each other or they say things that that are rude and whatever. I feel like if we were closer together and working um, and knew each other and built relationships, it would be a much easier problem to deal with. Is that, do you see that as being a part of this too? Yeah. I was nodding my head, which looks great for podcasts. Um, hmm. Yeah. I, I, again, I think, it, I think it goes back to this notion of social trust. So if you have a very, you have a very hom uh, homogeneous, homogeneous there. That's much better. A homogeneous <laughs> culture. People that have had the same culture, the same religion, the same language, social trust is pretty high. And you can do things like um, go things like the honor system for collecting admission to a park, for example. Um, if you start to introduce people that are not the same as you uh, in terms of like culture, religion, language, uh, social class upbringing, social trust, social trust starts to break down uh, in pretty bad ways. And I think that's when you start to see people like. I think the rules you described are, were very common. There were like English common law rules. But, don't but steal, was, don't murder. But the, but the thing is, those same rules existed in all of these civilizations. Yes. They existed in each of the major religions as well. And that's the thing that we don't we don't seem to understand is, it, I, I don't agree with you. I don't think it's because somebody else is from a different culture, because they're from a different set of rules or a different religion or whatever. I think it's because we don't know them. 
and the social trust that you're talking about, maybe that's where that comes from. But I think it comes from the interpersonal relationship that we have with people. And the more you build that up, the closer you get, the harder it is to break those rules. You, you have to have a certain set of rules to base any relationship on. And those rules don't really vary from one culture to the next, from what I've seen in my short, short existence so far. Yeah, I think I agree. I, um, we all want like, to be respected. We all want, and by respect, I mean you have an existence that I accept, and I have an existence that you accept. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think when you look at somebody who is not not of your kind, so to speak, um, if if someone is visually similar to you, the amount of energy you have to expend to figure out how they're going to behave in a situation, uh, you're, you don't have to spend as much energy doing that. If someone is visually very different than you. Suddenly, you have to spend mental cycles. Oh, like how's this person going to behave? Are you saying that as like a straw man? You're you're proposing an argument, or is this what you actually believe? That, well, this is this is by no means a proof. It's just my theory about how people look at situations. How, how other people look at situations. Right, right. So you know, and that this so this is the thing about the social trust, right? So if you even though like intellectually, I could know that you know people from uh, Singapore probably don't consider murder to be a morally acceptable action right and probably not steal these are probably pretty good assumptions most cultures are like that don't don't steal don't murder um but if if they look they don't look like me they don't look like people that i grew up with suddenly i'm like oh well maybe i shouldn't make those assumptions and until i'm proven otherwise you kind of are a little bit hesitant and i think like especially like in today's like you said like in today's culture the one we're living in right now we have to deal with a bunch of different people that you know, because it's the internet and because we can rapidly be in contact with a lot of different people that not only maybe might be different culturally, but we could look at them and they don't look like us. So we can't make those assumptions, even if those assumptions might be flawed. Like I could look at someone who looks like me and they could be an axe murderer, right? I'm sure. not saying that there aren't exceptions to that, but generally speaking, you can see situations where you start mashing a bunch of people together that aren't similar. It's a lot more effort to establish that kind of trust. Not say so you and, can't and do I, it because I mean clearly we have examples where that where that has been done. Yeah, and and just to add on to what you're saying, or to clarify what you're saying, it sounds to me like you're you're not necessarily saying you look at someone and because they're of the same race or the same gender or the same ethnicity or the same whatever. Yeah, it sounds to me like you're saying there are a lot of other cues there. I wear a hoodie. They wear a hoodie. I wear sneakers. They wear sneakers. Is that what you're saying? Like all of those little cues. Um, and I'm not saying just those specific ones, but if yeah. they were something completely different, if they, you know, show, I, I don't have a good example that doesn't offend someone. I, I would like to think that if I, if I see someone who's not like me, that I'm able to explore the space between stimulus and reaction. So if I see someone and I have a reaction to what they look like, then I'm able to stop myself and say like, is the reaction I'm having reasonable? Uh, or, you know, I'm not going to try to act on, um, you know, my, my knee jerk reaction to somebody that I'll try to give more effort. But I mean, there are some situations where, uh, if I see someone who I think is relatively dangerous, I'm not, you know, I'm going to act on and the better part of you know, sure. caution. And, yeah. And that's a survival mechanism. Yeah. 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 I, I don't know. I, I, there's a part of me that agrees with a lot of what you're saying in the sense that 90, they say 90% of communication is nonverbal. Yeah. And I really believe that's true. And I think it's hurt us significantly in our communications um, over the internet is when number one, we can't see each other. So 90% is gone. Number two, we can't hear each other and hear the inflection in our voices. Right. Number three, how many people actually have a degree in writing? 
<laughs> how many how many people studied how to create inflection with with words in the written world um, and then we limit it even further in some cases by an sms text that has 120 characters or twitter that has 140 characters right so i i feel like we've taken or, or whatever it is you're using in the number of characters in their comments or, or whatever um I feel like we've taken communication back to a level that is beyond basic. It's it's before the, the basic level of communication. And so most of those cues that you're talking about are not there. We're interacting with our with each other on on that level and we 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 have to have rules in the same medium, which is the written language, in order to move forward. Otherwise if we could see each other, maybe the rules would be implicit. Yeah. Is that I- true? sounds reasonable I, I was wondering like the code of conduct for an open source project and the code of conduct you see for conferences are they do they serve a different purpose are they i mean for the people who propose them is it and i mean really charitable with people that are proposing them right i mean i'm not i have no proof one way or the other the people that, that propose this codes of conduct are doing anything other than um they have they have a real need they really they for some reason feel like they really need to see this the stuff in place right they're not they're actually trying to destroy anything uh, and i'm willing to be proven one way or the other i i'm not, you know jury's still out as far as i'm concerned but because you're interacting with people face to face at a conference is it different than if you're going to do it for open source projects where it's all relatively anonymized you're contributing through github i don't know i, I don't know the answer to that i can tell you though my understanding of the whole code of conduct thing that's going on in the last couple of years is it seems like it came from one conference where, uh, or a couple conferences where there were some problems and it seems like it got magnified much, much bigger than, uh, to, to, to appear to, to appear such that the sample set of problems was much higher or the incidence of problems was much higher um, than that one anecdote. Um, and that yeah. tends to happen a lot right now on social media and on Twitter is one thing happens in one place and we assume it's a problem everywhere else because... What? Because the Are you anecdote, saying hyperbole is a thing on the internet? <laughs> because, because the anecdote means more to us than the statistics. Yeah. Um, so that's another part where I call codes of conduct into question is that is, has this really been a problem in this many areas or did we just hear about the GitHub problem and we just heard about the, whatever conference it was where this was a problem. Yeah. And we assumed that because it got a whole bunch of likes or a whole bunch of retweets or whatever it is, um, that it's a problem everywhere. Yes. That's <laughs> no, that's a good point. I don't know the answer. Yeah. And, uh, because I like to think that people are basically good and we're all trying to, to work in our own interest in such a way that everyone else can remain happy at the same time. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think there are a lot of people out there. Maybe I'm wrong because my experience in life is different than a lot of the folks who um, experience these incidents is. Yeah. Uh, but I'd like to think that we're all working to to be kind to each other in most, in most incidents. Have we run this into the ground? I don't know if we run into the ground. It seems like every time we, 
like every, every time we're dipping into the and beneath the surface, like there's more there's more to uncover. There's and, a lot down there. I yeah. think it's just that I don't have the guts to get into it. <laughs> frankly. Well, okay. I, I I do think this is probably something we could come back to maybe in a in a couple of months and see if we if our perspectives have changed or gotten deeper or we've had an epiphany. And maybe this is a question we can ask guests that we have and say, let's let's talk a little bit about code of conducts and you know what we were experienced with them. I I I'm I don't think that by any means I have any kind of answers um, at this point. Yeah. Um, it seems like there's a lot of different ways you could look at it. Um, hey, and if you have a comment about uh, codes of conduct either at a conference or for an open source product or whatever, uh, reach out to us and let yeah. us know. Absolutely. And I guess where I'm coming from is just I'm an idealist. I want to live in a world where we don't have to have codes of conduct because we're all interested in working together in a positive peaceful productive manner yeah, yeah. i agree yeah um so you we had another thing that we were going to talk about here. uh yeah we wanted to talk about bugs and what are they worth so yeah so this is something that the other day i had a nice conversation with um a, a friend of mine a new friend of mine uh we've met a couple times at different meetups and things like that and he's got a few uh years and experiences under the belt that i don't have and that's one of the things that I love to look for um, in order to kind of become, to improve and become better is look for people who've been through similar things. So uh, we were talking about testing and automated testing specifically. He immediately started coming back to some questions that were just very simplistic. So he asked this question. He said, is there any airline that you would not fly on? And I'm asking it of you now. Is there any airline that I would not fly? Right. Um, I think like maybe Air Somalia. <laughs> uh, Is that a real thing? Like, did you have a bad experience with them? Or like <laughs> I think any airline that is not under the pressure of actual marketplace forces and it's actually just like, like a government monopoly, I probably would avoid like the plague. Um, because they they're not really accountable. So if we lose a plane, well, you know, it's no big deal. People still have to use us, right? It's kind of like working with any other like most cable companies in the metropolitan areas, right? They don't really care whether or not your experience is good. Uh, monopoly, who cares? Right? right who cares? Yeah. I think that's the ones I would avoid. Yeah. Um, I don't remember. In terms of growing up, there were a couple of airlines that were around that are not around anymore. Like Pan Am. That Pan was Am? one of the ones that I thought about. Was Eastern. Eastern, yeah. Uh, but Eastern Eastern was just bad because it went bankrupt, right? Pan Am was bad because they had terrorists on board. Wasn't there a few? There were a few explosions or terrorists. Is that why they went out of business? Pan Am? I don't know that that's why they went out of business. It's but I remember the Pan Am name because I remember a crash with the Pan Am logo there. Yeah, I you know, it, but it's hard to say because it's like a lot of the, the airline industry was so heavily regulated up until a certain point. It's hard to say. Was it was the was the fact they're out of business because of mismanagement or because they just didn't have the right political connections to get them through sure. bad stuff? Well, but yeah. So to your point, the the point, like I immediately thought of Malaysian Airlines because of the problems they've had. Yeah, they've had like three planes, two, three planes go down in the last four years. No, I'm not putting my family on Malaysian Airlines. But, period. Like if there is some, if I need to go to that part of the world, I will make every effort. You'll go Qantas. Yes. Well, I, I don't know. Like a couple of months ago, I guess when the Listeria outbreak was going on with Chipotle, was it Listeria? 
mm-hmm. or E. coli. My wife, I said, let's go get some food. And she said, where do you want to go? I'm like, well, how about Chipotle? And she's like, well, they've had all these problems. I'm like, yeah, they're they're going to be so on target with every single That's bit right. of their sanitation yeah. pipeline because they're under the microscope. Yeah. Uh, and so I and so we didn't get any food poisoning, which was great. Uh, do you think maybe like Malaysian Airlines is a little bit more on on target right now? Well, or I don't know. I mean, they haven't had a major issue since the last two, right? Um, but I get but, your point. But there were two of them in very short order that just were gone. So it makes me think that it's more systematic. Yeah. Than incidental. Did they right? did they really solve all the issues that led yeah, up to those? Yeah. Um, my and yeah, and, and I don't I don't know what all the issues were. I had the same thought as you. Like after nine eleven, the best time to fly was in, almost immediately after nine eleven because everybody's going to be on guard. Yeah. Uh, within the next couple months, there within a year or two, and it was the safest I feel like I've ever flown in my life. Um, I the people who were making sure to to check passengers at the time were better. We wanted to get into what is the value, what is the worth of a bug here. Meaning, uh, like, and, and so so what I was trying to say is. Um, this guy was asking me, you know, what, what airline would you not fly? I said, Malaysian Airlines or Pan Am. And he says, you know, why is that? And because, because the crashes or whatever went on with them. He says, that's exactly right. He says, that's why, um, that's what these software companies or hardware companies or whatever they are. In my case, the software companies want from my business and my business is there, needs to be there in order to assure them that that's not going to happen. And, and he's he's absolutely right, and I hadn't really thought about it in those terms before. Uh, the Tylenol scare way back when, when there were yes. Tylenol bottles, right? So we had issues with Tylenol. The red dye number five, is that what it was? And there was some problem with that in manufacturing, and people got sick or died. I don't know what actually happened, but uh, back in the 80s or 90s. Yeah, I remember the Tylenol scare, because um, I was probably 11 or 12 when that was going on. But I, I, the thing I remember about it was that the reason... The Tylenol is still around is because of their reaction to the problem. They didn't attempt to say, nope, there's not a problem. Everybody, everything. And like, I think statistically speaking, the number of bottles of Tylenol that were effective were pretty small. And they could have said, well, it's only 1.2% of all the bottles. You're fine. And people would have been like, are you kidding? Like, you're not taking this seriously. But I think Tylenol basically, they pulled all their product from the shelves until they could completely clean out their pipeline. Yeah. And so they currently were able to maintain their trust. Um, even though, you know, they, they could have just said, no, well, it's, we only removed the products that were bad. You're, you're, everybody's good. Right. Right. So, um, how does this relate to Malaysia airlines? But, but I think, I think you're right. Like most people would not fly because, because they had those very visual indications that there's a system systemic problem. And so, so this guy was saying like, when you said your company, you mean both of Fairmont. Right. Basically. This is what we're selling, Beaufort Fairmont. Beaufort yeah, this is what we're selling is that that assurance that this isn't going to happen. Um, I spoke with a client recently and was kind of blown away by one of the things that they said. They said, we don't care that the page doesn't show up. We care if the information on the page is wrong. So if the page doesn't show up, that would be better than if the information is wrong on the page. And I, I had just made this assumption and my team had made this assumption going along that if the page doesn't show up, that's a bad thing. And for most places that would be a bad thing, but challenging these fundamental assumptions um, and really in their case, something like that, if the numbers are wrong, they would end up losing, they could, they could lose millions of dollars in a, uh, you know, in, in a company that, that makes 70, 80 million in a year. Yeah. And that's a major impact to their, their business. But is it, and, and I mean, this might be, you know, a slice and hairs here, but, 
for for somebody who does software or test automation as part of like a quality process, is it really your job to make sure that the data is right? Or is it really about informing the company, by the way, we found a situation where your data will be wrong? Well, it depends on the customer, it depends on, on what they need, right? If If I'm assuming that my feedback is equally weighted, let's say, between the information being wrong and uh, the information not showing up, I've made a mistake with this particular client. Because one's more valuable because than the other. Because one is obviously more valuable than the other. So yeah. my feedback needs, the, the amount of feedback that I give about one or where I focus my efforts in order to give feedback needs to be weighted more heavily in one place than the other, right? So, uh, you know, in the case where someone says it's critically important that we not have the bad data, well, how, if they're if they're making, let's say they make eighty million dollars a year, right? And they they have a problem where the data is wrong. Were you able to to quantify exactly what that cost was going to be to them? Is it lost sales? Is it a transaction that they've got to make good on on behalf of their client? I don't know. I mean, in this, I don't want to get into specifics, sure. but if you theoretically had a client like that where you were working through those kinds of issues, you'd need to work with the client to understand exactly what the impact is. Because I can't, I can't know, and I know what you're getting getting into here, but I, I can't, I can't personally know what the impact is, and my company can't know until they tell us. But once they tell us, we can gauge it um, and and understand exactly what we need to do moving forward in, in order to best help them, right? Yeah. 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 But uh, I mean, everything comes down in terms of automated testing or testing. It comes down to risk-based assessments. And until you understand the degree of each of those risks, you don't really, you don't know what you're doing. So not all bugs are created equal. No, absolutely not. No. Um, you know that. Yeah, I, di I did. And so there's a point in my career where Zero defect software development was a thing in my head. Oh, it was something that was possible? That's well, I don't know if it was possible, <laughs> but I sort of treated all bugs as if, you know, the tolerance for any bug was completely unacceptable. And I was working with a guy who was probably 20 years, 20, 25, maybe 30 years my senior in terms of development. And he kind of said, well, you'd be nice if we could fix all bugs, but we, we don't. His point was we didn't have the bandwidth to fix all bugs. We needed to focus on the ones that were the most important. And at the time, I think I, I really kind of wrinkled at this because I kind of felt like, well, he's just making an excuse. He doesn't want to fix all these ones that we could fix pretty quickly. But over time, I've kind of come to appreciate that what he really meant, what, what he really meant to say was, look, we only have so many hours in the day. We need to figure out what's the most important bugs to fix and that we can't possibly fix them all. We need to focus on the ones that have the most value. And I guess in a situation where um, you can talk directly to a client who's got a very good business uh, sense of what it means to their clients to have wrong data, like you can, you can, you can at least have a conversation about if this is wrong. What what are the impacts? What are the impacts? Repercussion. Yeah, it's going to cost them something. Um, it's harder if you're working on a product where you're not sure what the business model is. Like, how, how could you? Like, like you're in a startup. You're not sure what the successful business formula is. So if someone looks at the code that's being produced and someone says, well, that doesn't look right and that's not right, that's, that's, that, to me, that's like 10 times harder because you're like, well, I don't know what's valuable. So what's the most important thing to fix? And so you're kind of a little bit like throwing darts. I guess you could, you could formulate a hypothesis about what's important. And then based on that, you say, here's the profile of the bugs we have. If, if we're really going with this, 
hypothesis that this is our business model, then these are the things that are important. And you might be totally wrong, right? But it just seems like that's like a much steeper hill to climb than a situation where the sure. customer's like, I have a business that works and these are the things that absolutely must happen. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it kind of reminds me of one of the Joel on software blogs where this is Joel Spolsky. I don't know how many people listening well, know who that is. But if you don't know. Joelonsoftware.com. Yeah, go check it out. Um, he's kind of like one of the thought leaders in terms of software and consulting and building businesses regarding software. He helped build Stack Overflow or founded Stack Overflow yeah. and several other things. Fog bugs. And if you don't know what Stack Overflow is, then I don't, I don't know. What, what are you are, doing? Why are you listening to this? We disavow. We disavow. Joe Spolsky is an interesting <laughs> guy there. He's like... We need to get him on here. When's he coming on? Uh, Can you do that? I don't know. Have you got an assistant that could like call him every single day at three o'clock? A o'clock? really interesting personality because I, I was reading about his, you know, his history, and he's like apparently like an ex-Israeli paratrooper who's also gay and went to yeah. Cornell and worked for Microsoft. Yeah. It's like, yeah, how many guys you know fit that profile? Yeah. Let's see if he needs a code of conduct though, right? <laughs> <laughs> he, he was a paratrooper. He can handle it. He was an Israeli so, paratrooper. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, so it reminds me of a conversation that, or a blog post that he had on there where he was talking about, and I think it was him. Sometimes I get him and Jeff Atwood mixed up, but one like of them the was same talking guy. about, yeah. <laughs> but, but basically one of them was talking about the idea that when you have a product, if you, if you can take the business idea or, or any particular idea related to the product and you take it out into the hallway and the next person to walk down the hallway, you ask them about it, whatever their feedback is will give you the feedback that 50% of the people out there would have given you anyway. The next person that comes along will give you the second piece of feedback and whatever they say will get you up to 75% of all the feedback that anybody would have said. And the third person that comes along will give you 87.5%, right? We're doing fractions here. But basically, uh, you can get up to 90, almost 90%, which is three people's feedback. And I think that's really true with business ideas, provided you have a sufficiently diverse group of people to ask, and they're set at random, I guess. Um, that's, that's a really interesting idea. I never really thought about that. Um so in that case that you're talking about, if you have a startup and you don't know how the business model works, the more people you ask, the more likely you are to come up with information that can help you build the business model in such a way that it helps and to know which pieces will help you. But I do think that one of the things that he doesn't, one of the things that he implies is that there's a certain randomness about this and that the people that you're pulling out of the hallway are just random people, which yeah. is not the case sure. when you're working in a software shop or when you're sitting down with five other founders of your company, they all have certain presumptions just like you. Yeah. I wonder if there's like some way the Pareto principle fits in here I where don't know what that is. you get uh, 80% of the value or 80% of the gain is usually from 20% of your total effort. Yeah. And so it's figuring out, well, where's that 20% that you really want to, press the, you know, press, press down on yeah. to get the most benefit from. And it seems like, well, you could spend, you know, hours and hours canvassing thousands of people, or you can ask 20 people and get roughly the same spectrum of ideas. So now why are you so interested in this? Is this because of digitalobit.com? You mean like, as far as like gathering feedback? Well, let me, it's, it's interesting. So I think when you have a business to business, that's a different in some ways, much easier route to drive than, than direct to consumer. Because in order to do really good 
direct to consumer, you have to know, to paraphrase Amy Hoy, you have to know sexy or cool mm. or hot. If you if you're really good at, at figuring that out, um, you're probably going to do really well. But for if you're just starting out trying to build any kind of business, going to consumer is much much riskier, much harder. Um, yeah, I think I think I am interested in that because I've seen a lot of businesses that they will they will kind of work in secret. They go into stealth mode and then they, they jump out of the bushes with their product and they're like, Hey everybody, we got this great thing. And then they just, they just die a miserable death because no one cares. And so, you know, it's like if they had just, uh, engaged people in you know, that customer development process at some point before they started spending all this money, they might have learned valuable lessons about, Oh, Hey, nobody cares about this. And here's something they do care about. And maybe they could, you know, go on from there. Anyways, yeah. that that's just what I've observed with some companies. Um, I think that's I think that's a good point. I mean, I I think you're you're right on. You kind of have to get outside of your own world. One one of the things with marketing, which is kind of where you were going, is just because something doesn't work for you doesn't mean that it wouldn't work otherwise. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that tends to appear to work to me is if you are incredibly popular and you come up with something that some people like then you have a much better chance of that thing growing and becoming big than if you're not popular or you have a very homogenous, um, that's the word of the day, right? Are we all supposed to like yell and scream when we say that word? Um, if you have a very, um, it's not from the Pee-wee Herman Playhouse. And yeah. I can't bring that up because that's totally against the code of conduct of this particular. <laughs> I think they just made another Pee-wee movie. <laughs> Did they really? Yeah. Not with him. No, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Paul Herman. Is that, what was his name? Uh, Paul, uh, Paul Rubin. Paul Rubin, yeah, wow. Pee Wee Herman was the character. Never thought that guy would work again. Um, and we're not going to go over why. Well, we could, but it would be against. We'd have to change some of the, conduct, yeah, right. Um, so, so anyway, um, I don't know. We were talking about the worth of bugs, and I think that I think you make a good point with startups. You may not be able to properly weight uh, one bug versus another, or, or one function versus another. Yep. With bigger companies and with business to business, yeah, I, I could see that. Like you're saying, it might be easier. Well, I think you probably still could make an educated guess. I just think it's harder. Yeah. Um, but it, it. So yeah, I mean, and this okay. This this is going to lead into my other favorite topic, which is value based pricing. But something I've struggled with off and on is if you're gonna if you're gonna talk to somebody about you're gonna provide a service where you're like my services, I'm gonna guarantee that you're not gonna go down. Yeah. Like we're going to, we're going to give you security against a catastrophic failure of your website. Right. right? And here are the things we're going to do to help pro- provide that. Uh, like what's the value of that to the business? Is it the value of a day's operation? Is it the value of the mean time to repair that they or don't have it, to pay is for? Is it losing a, cost, a major customer? Is yeah. it? That's another good thing. Yeah. So I, and I don't have the answer to that. And I'd, I would love to talk to somebody who's like, or do they care? Some companies won't even care if you're no. down for a day, right? Because right. one day doesn't matter. It's just, because they only do all of their, what if they're accountants and they do all of their business between February the 16th and, you know, May, like. They don't care if it goes down between October cares? 22nd and October 29th. Who cares? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So it, it's always interesting to me how people package that stuff. And because then you really have to do have to ask, well, what's the value of a bug? What's the value of your site not being up? Yeah. Or if you talk to an accountant who says, what's the value of having data that's wrong on your website? And I guess for somebody like that, it's not, but if you're working with somebody who, you know, our site has to be up every single day. Yeah. Um, 
because they're sensitive to their customers being upset about not being available and they go away or they're losing transactions. Like if you're a transaction-based website. If you're Amazon, losing a day is a big, big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I have to imagine like, I don't know if Jeff Bezos stays up at night going, oh, we can't go down. (laughs) Uh, I won't be able to afford my competition with SpaceX if I I don't do this. Um, Yeah, no, I hear you. You know, what's funny to me is the more I find myself limiting... Um, what I think about that, the bigger problems I have and the more I'm willing to listen to points of view that are different than mine, the better things become. It doesn't mean that I have to necessarily believe the same thing as the person across the table from me or whatever. It's just that the more I'm willing to listen, the the better things get. I don't know how to say that. So I just did. Well, we've definitely run out of things to talk about. We've, I, yeah, I think we've hit all the all the high notes. What's going on for you after April? This should be released in in probably middle of March. Uh, yeah. So um, if you're listening to this and you're looking at the calendar, and it's about the eyes of March. In two weeks, I'm going to MicroConf, which is in Las Vegas, where I'm meeting up with 200 or so uh, other micro ISV uh, entrepreneurial folks. And I went two years ago, and I met some people that I'll probably be talking. Uh, to and with and be friends with for a long, long time um, and hope to learn a lot of stuff, especially about uh, businesses that I'm trying to start. I think two years ago when I went, I kind of sort of felt like the conference was, it was good, um, but it was kind of geared for people that were further ahead in the in the game than I was. And I think coming back now, I think I'll get more out of it. You made a lot of steps. Uh, I think so. I feel like I stubbed my toe more than anything else. But I think you've taken some good steps. I'm well, excited about where things are going with you guys. Yeah, I, like I said, it's it's an uphill fight, um, but so I'm ex- I'm excited to do that. And um, like I said, I, I just got back from Elixir Days. By the time you're listening to this, but yeah, so next is MicroConf, and um, not much planned after that as far as like conferences. Um, but I've got uh, more clients that I'm trying to uh, go the business value pricing route with. Oh, cool. So April and May are going to be interesting from a okay, we're going to have more value conversations and I'm, hopefully I'm going to get better at yeah. learning the art of value pricing. I'll let you know how it goes. How's that going so far? Pretty good? Well, I got my first client to, to fully go with that and it actually worked out really well. Um, so as a developer, you know, sometimes getting payment from customers can be hazardous, right? Or not hazardous, but it can be difficult, right? They're not going to pay. They're going to fight you on the invoice. Um, I, what I found is if you do hourly billing, some clients are kind of you know, going to quibble about, uh, why did you spend time on this? Why did you spend time on that? Sure. Um, so with this client, you know, I did the value pricing conversation and I kind of established why they wanted to do the work. And we kind of said, okay, well, it looks like you're trying to address a problem that's going to cost you X amount of dollars uh, per year. So if we fix that, you're, you're, you're not going to have that cost. And so I, I kind of laid out a price and I got to tell you, like they didn't have an objection at all to the price. Uh, their only concern was getting a discount um, that I offered if they prepaid. Uh, I think I offered like 10% if they prepaid and they did. In fact, when I sent the invoice, they paid in like an hour and a half. Oh, wow. Cool. And that was before the work even started. So it was like night and day. Um, wow. So that was a great uh, outcome. Uh, and I'm going to start for that. Yeah. And so I'm hoping the future ones are just as good. So we'll see. Now, do you have to pay uh, the podcast, the art value, a royalty for talking about these things on our podcast? I... Okay, so I've had to change my um, my address three times so Kirk Bowman doesn't track me down. 
<laughs> I thought you were going to say you had to change your birth certificate three times. Oh, that's a good in, idea. In order to, to, to make an endorsement of him with the Art of Value being your middle name now. James, the Art of Value Jeffers. Uh, no, well, I mean, I do listen to his podcast a lot, and uh, it's it's interesting listening to him talk to folks that are either have done it themselves. And I think he's got a couple of stuff um, like on YouTube where he talks about, Hey, I just spent the last year converting my business over. Yeah. It's interesting listening to him talk about that. Um, I kind of consider him to be like light years ahead of, of where I sure. am. Um, so we'll see. I think the other thing that's kind of coming up for me is trying to think about my business in terms of specialization uh-huh. uh, as a consultant. And there's a couple of reasons for that. We can get into it later. But th- those are the kind of things that are looking like they're coming up on my horizon. What about for, for both of Fairmont? Yeah. So we're doing similar stuff. We're looking at outcome-based uh, options yeah. in the next year. So in 2016, we're moving over to that. I think it's going to be really successful. Well, hey, I've enjoyed it once again. Yes. Well. And uh, I'll see you on the next episode. This was Reflection as a Service. If you want to get a hold of us, I'm on Twitter at Merrill, And I'm at J.D. Jeffers. And Reflection as a Service is at Reflection AAS. And you can find us on our website, reflectionasaservice.com. We're on SoundCloud. Make sure to review us on SoundCloud, iTunes, whatever. That really helps us because it makes it so that we get more followers. And with that, we can do more for you, the listener. We can offend more people in a shorter amount of time. That's right. And since this whole episode is throwaway anyway, James, it's been fun. Uh, I assume this will only be used for political reasons in the future. (laughs) This Um, will keep us from office. Yes, yes. Neither of us will ever be able to run for office. There we go. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a nice day. Ciao. (laughs)